0: I want to ask us a question, something to give us, something to think about as we go through God's word this morning. You know, we can read about this historical uh, story and everything else, but if we don't take it and apply it to our life here and now, it's just information. So as we talk through this information, I want you to be thinking about this. What is your response? What is your reaction when something happens that is beyond your control? I'm sure you may think about some circumstances now, either personally in your life or in society around us. When things happen that are beyond your control, there's nothing you can say, nothing you can do to bring peace to the situation, what is our typical reaction or response when things like that happen? So that's what we're going to take a look at today. So keep that in mind as we go through God's word. So we're going to pick up in verse 21 of chapter 19. So let's read verses 21 and 22 to get into God's word this morning. It says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, He himself stayed in Asia for a while. So take a quick break. I just kind of want to set this up because basically these two verses summarize everything that's going to happen in the remainder of the book of Acts. So through the rest of the the next eight chapters is Paul's efforts and work to get to Rome. You heard him say there, I must also see Rome. So that's his eyes are set there. So as he is going to finish out his third missionary journey, he's going to return to Jerusalem. He's going to give a report. And then everything that happens there and in his travels in heading to Rome, that's what the rest of our study is going to be about through the book of Acts. But for now, let's carry on in verse 23 and read through verse 27. It says, About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Remember, the way was a term in those days uh, referring to Christianity. There was no little disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines to Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen and similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only in this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of our great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship we pause there together we kind of see what's starting to take place this section started with there was no little disturbance so something is going on something is happening And the way that luke writes he uses that phrase again that because of what's going on this demetrius is saying this paul is persuaded and turned many people away from the worshiping of artemis now the temple of artemis resides in ephesus Now, if we have any historians in the room this morning we know that the temple of artemis is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world there are seven current wonders of the world but there are also proclaimed seven wonders of the ancient world and this temple in ephesus is one of those along with the great pyramids of giza the hanging gardens of babylon statue of zeus and, and a few others that we may or may not know of but this was a magnificent temple. It was beautiful. In fact, many people in their writings said that the temple at Artemis by far and away exceeded in glory any of these other wonders. It was that magnificent. Something to behold in the way that it was built. The size of it was larger than in length a uh, football and a half field. I, sorry, I just, I think in terms of football yardage. It's the way I operate. Plus, it's football season, but I won't get too distracted. (laughs) It was also as wide, if not more so, than a football field. So if you can just picture that, this is the size of this temple to one God in Ephesus. This was a tremendous piece of structure. But the whole temple was dedicated to Artemis, who was the goddess of the hunt, the goddess of wilderness, but also the goddess of nature and the goddess of fertility and childbirth. She, she was fairly important in Greek mythology. In fact, if you know your Roman mythology, the goddess Diana is attributed in the same way to the Romans. But Artemis was the center of worship and attraction in Ephesus. People from around the world would travel to Ephesus just to go to this temple to worship Artemis. And many were taking advantage of that fact, like Demetrius did, who's a craftsman, who made these silver shrines, these idols of Artemis. So if you were to ever, if you guys are travelers and you go to a lot of places and you pick up little trinkets uh, the places you visit, if you've ever been to Washington, D.C., you might have a little trinket of the, the Washington Monument. Or if you've been to Paris, you might bring back a little trinket of uh, the Eiffel Tower or something along those lines. So the, Demetrius and these craftsmen were doing the same thing for the goddess Artemis. They would make little silver idols, but for the people in that day, they would worship those idols. They needed something tangible to see and to touch and to feel. And and it was such a trade that Demetrius was saying to the others, this was our wealth. Everything that we did and how we lived and the money that we made was from this. And now it's in danger of going by the wayside because of this Paul who is preaching the way. In fact, we saw this not too long ago. Back in chapter 16, Remember the, uh, the demon-possessed slave girl that was hounding Paul and, and, and Silas? But do you remember what it was said about her owners? It says they were met by a slave girl who had the spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain, financial gain, from fortune-telling. So wealth cloaked in religiosity to appeal to the people so people could make money. But her owners, when she was released of that possession, her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and and did what they did. So here Demetrius is doing the the same thing with these idols, these shrines. It's not so much he's concerned about the the religion, the the mythology, and the, the goddess Artemis. It wasn't so much about that because you see his focus is on the wealth. But then he also appeals to the spirituality of Ephesus saying, oh, and by the way, this temple might fall into disrepute if if this continues. But it really wasn't about that, was it? It was about its financial gain. Because a people who revere God will not reveal or revere a temple dedicated to a lower God. People who revere and worship the God of the Bible are not going to spend money to buy a shrine or idol to another god. Because this, this was in Paul's teaching. One of the main portions of teaching that Paul would give to people would probably come from Deuteronomy chapter 5. You shall have no other gods before me. Amen. He made that point, and it would be known. But also, in their possession in that time, scripture that could have been read... We have no guarantee because we just don't know but it's in the book of psalms but i would like to assume in the amount of idolatry that existed in the in that day maybe this would have been read consider this for a moment it comes in the book of psalms chapter 115 in verses 4 through 8 it says their idols are silver and gold the work of human hands they have mouths but do not speak eyes but do not see They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but they do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. That would have been a powerful word for Demetrius and anybody who would take one of these gods, these idols, and consider it an act of their worship. See, either we're a disciple of the one true God, seeking to become like him. Remember last week we talked about what a disciple is, a a student of another's teaching, but so much so that that teaching becomes the reign and rule of our life, therefore seeking to become like the one who taught us. So as disciples of Jesus, we seek to be like God, So you're either going to be like God and take on the nature of Christ and act as He acted and walked as as He walked or we become a lifeless, motionless, powerless being with no eternal purpose. Make your choice. That's what it comes down to. That's simply what it is. So it's extremely important for us here and now that we regularly, constantly, consistently evaluate the things that we have and use in our life. Asking ourselves, is this thing becoming more important to me than my worship of the one true God? Is it becoming more important to me? Is it taking precedence over God? Or could we even say, is it my God? It's something we have to consider. God said, you shall have no other gods before me. And I want to assume and I want to guess For the benefit of the doubt, not too many of us here go home and just shove aside the biblical God and actually get on our knees to some silver handcrafted item. I want to assume we don't do that. That's not Christianity. That's not what we do. But I'm sure we all, from time to time, carry one in our pocket. We we turn one on with the click of a button. We drive one around from time to time. We clothe ourselves in things that may be a little more important to us because the best way you can evaluate if anything, material possession in your life is becoming more important to you than God, then remove it and ask yourself, do I need to have this in my life? If I don't have it, am I okay? Or if I leave the house without it, will i actually turn my car around and go home and get it because it's that important to me whatever it might be but we have to evaluate that from time to time so at this time in our story ephesus is dividing it's becoming divided but i also want to remind us that jesus didn't come to give us peace on earth sound a little hypocritical bear with me for a moment We do a lot of things in life and have a lot of concern about what's going on in society, what's going on in the politics. And should we be involved in the freedom we have as Americans to get involved? Yes, we've been given a voice through the election system. But with everything that happens in society, we feel like we're going to clamor and fight and argue our way to a peaceful existence so that nothing is happening that is going to divide and conquer the way I feel about my life. See, we've got to be careful. Jesus even said in Luke 12, 51, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Ah, see, we don't like to hear that from Jesus. Jesus is our, our little Emmanuel. He's our little prince of peace. He is our, 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 our little beautiful thing that we like to say is love and hope and joy and peace. But he himself, by his words, in red letters said, I came to bring division. Why? Because the very nature of Christ cannot coexist with the sin and darkness of this world. So simply by his presence in this world, it causes division. Can light coexist with darkness? Can sin coexist with purity in Christ? No, it can't. Can good coexist with evil? No, it can't. May You may drive around from time to time and see those little bumper stickers on people's cars that say, coexist, and it's written out in the symbols of all the religions. Coexist, peace, brothers and sisters. No matter what you believe, we can all live together in harmony and peace and love. That's a nice thought, but it's just not true. So we're seeing this division because the nature of Christ is infiltrating the darkness and sin of Ephesus. In this idol worship, in this temple to other gods and, and whatever else, people are starting to divide. Remember last week we talked about how so many came to Christ and they destroyed and burned their, their magic books and, 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 and shrugged off the, the gods and goddesses of the Greek and, and Roman way of life and gave their life to Christ. And so there was an automatic divide that was happening. So with Christianity on the rise in Ephesus, the culture and religion of the region was dividing. And this was starting to affect the pocketbooks of Demetrius and all these others. And so they're getting a little riled up. And we're losing our income. We're losing our way of life because of this way, this Christianity. See, this was more of a, a cause of concern against Christianity, not so much Paul. Yeah, Paul was the, the voice, but it was Christianity that was starting to flourish people were not falling into that way of life and so let's not forget what jesus said you cannot serve two masters and this is coming to light in ephesus for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve both god and money can you have money of course you can of course you can But as soon as money takes precedence over your worship and love for God and doing what He calls you to do, then it becomes an idol and it cannot coexist. You cannot serve both God and money. You can have money, but you need to serve God and do what He calls you to do with what He's given you and blessed you with. But money cannot be the rule and reign of your life. So we're seeing that happen. So I'm going to read. The rest of the chapter. I just, it's not going to be up on the screen. I just want you to, to listen to what takes place out of this discontent that Demetrius brings up. It says, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, the Macedonians who were with Paul's, who were who were Paul's companions in travel when Paul wished to go in among the crowd the disciples would not let them and even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of Paul's sent to him and were urging him do not venture into the theater now some cried out one thing and some another for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had even come together Artemis God of Artemis and they're kind of looking around going why are we in an upheaval we don't even know what's going on but I'm mad that sound familiar? See that ever happen in society today? Some of the crowd was prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They wouldn't even recognize a Jew to speak because they associated Judaism with Christianity, and so they just squashed any voice that was going to be heard in that theater. And when the town clerk who had quieted the crowd said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know the city of the Ephesians is a temple keeper of the great Artemis and the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open." And there are pro Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is a very interesting portion of scripture. But this is why this portion of scripture is called the riot in Ephesus because these people are clamoring they're yelling they're screaming for hours on hand in defense of their goddess artemis and her temple but they have no understanding as to why so the discontent of a few turned into the mob of thousands but it's an interesting portion of scripture in what i just read in that second half jesus isn't mentioned the gospel is not proclaimed paul is not even present or allowed to be present Those who were dragged there that were Christians, Gaius and Aristarchus, were not allowed to even speak. The Jews were even kept from speaking. And it was just a moment of madness and confusion. But this is what is mentioned. If you heard the words, there was rage, confusion, yelling, screaming, commotion, and rioting. But do you remember what's not mentioned? The name of Jesus. So what happens when we remove Christ from the conversation? When we remove any semblance of hope in the God above, what happens? Does that sound familiar to what we may have experienced in our day? Especially recently, just in the last few years? But if you remember the story of Paul in Corinth, something similar happens. Gallio comes to Paul's defense. And in this way, this town clerk who in essence is like a mayor of Ephesus. He steps in to calm the mob saying that Ephesus is still important. We're still important to the world. People still come here. These, these Christians, Gaius and Aristarchus, they've not done anything wrong. So don't harm them. They've brought no charges. They haven't done anything. They haven't harmed our temple. They haven't said or anything that has broken any law. So essentially giving Christianity a little thumbs up, so to speak, that unless they do something against the law, let them be. The idol makers should bring their complaints to the court system as is proper. And the city was in danger of losing its free society by the Romans if they were to riot. See, it was a Roman outpost and Rome allowed them to be a free society, self-governing. But if they riot and cause all this confusion, that could be shut down and Rome could come in and physically take over. So people, calm down. And so they did. But it's very interesting in fact, I thought this was this is just a little side point. Caleb, could you put up the picture that I, I have in there? The theater in Ephesus? It still exists today. This is where the mob gathers together to cry out on, in defense of Artemis. In fact, even more interesting is, is I was studying and preparing, I I found out online through Instagram that my cousin had been traveling to uh, Israel and and was touring around and happened to find himself, and and as I was finishing up the study for today, I saw he took a picture sitting in this theater. I was like, oh my God, that's a coincidence, and so I messaged him saying, are you still there? I'm actually preaching on this tomorrow, and he says, yes, I'm sitting right here in the theater reading through Acts 19, but it still exists. You could fit up to 25,000 people in that theater. So you could imagine if that place was packed out, how loud that would have been because they didn't need you know, speakers and amplification. You could stand on the stage below and speak very clearly and the entire theater would hear your voice and the way these things were built. So you could imagine when 25,000 gather, s- screaming, yelling, and whatever else, why this would have been seen as a riot. There was just mass confusion. Now, here's what I want to focus on today. I want to go back to the original question I asked you. What we heard is the city and town of Ephesus was out of control. And there was nothing that could be done by Paul, Gaius, Aristarchus, any of the Christians. In fact, it, it took a city official <coughs> pardon me, to calm down the crowd before they ended up rioting and, and destroying anything. And so I asked you guys a question. When situations occur, political, economic, cultural, in society, whatever it is that gets out of control and is beyond our control, beyond anything that we can do. Even in our own life, in our own home, when things seem to be out of control, out of our hands, what is our reaction? What do we do? And I put this question out there to some people, and, and one person said, oh, I just say, forget it. I'm going to the gym. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to put my hand on I'm just going to go lift weights. Someone else said, I, I have a pity party. Because when we look at things that happen in society, I just kind of get in, I internalize it, and I just kind of get in my head and say, this is ridiculous. This is dumb. I have a pity party. But then I typically will spend some time in prayer. And that's what most people ended up saying. I just trust in the Lord. I just pray sometimes, isn't it, seem like that's all we can do? But let's not downgrade and diminish prayer and trusting in God and what that is when things are out of our control. So let me remind us of a few stories throughout Scripture. I want to go back to the very beginning. You don't need to turn there. We're not going to read too much about it, but in Genesis chapter 11, there is a short portion of Scripture, and this is post-flood. So Noah and his family were repopulating the earth. And at one point, all the people got together and said, let's build a tower. We want to build a tower into the heavens. It's called the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 11, and even God recognized the unity of people, what they can do when they're truly unified is unstoppable. But when man thinks he's in complete control, What happens? It only serves to bring massive amounts of confusion and chaos. See, man is sinful even after the flood. Man is still inherently sinful, trying to do everything that he could to elevate himself, and that's what the builders of Babel were doing—building this this structure, this tower, to reach the heavens, not to reach God and get closer to God, but because they thought they were God, in and of themselves. But we got to remember. We serve a God who is a God of peace and not confusion. But he is God. And if he needs to instill a little confusion into life, to remind us of who he is and draw us back so we set our vision upon who he is, then that's his right to do so. But we serve a God of peace. That in the midst of confusion, we can look at God and find our peace. In fact, I was reminded also of a a quote, for those of you that don't know, as a history teacher in a former life. And one of my favorite quotes came from the Constitutional Convention in 1787. Spoken by a man whose religious history is a little cloudy. Benjamin Franklin. Most would say not even close to being a Christian. In fact, I myself, through my studies, I would not declare him a Christian by what I read and study. Was he a deist? Was he an agnostic, maybe thinking there's got to be a God somewhere? We don't know. It's very cloudy. But this he would have to say when they were debating and conversing and creating the Constitution of the United States. He said, he rose up and said, Sir, I have lived a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth. That God governs in the affairs of men. We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings, speaking of scripture, that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Quoting Psalm 127. He goes on to say, I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. Interesting quote. That if we don't appeal to God, who governs in the affairs of men, who is in absolute total control and is sovereign over all things that take place, if we don't appeal to him and we think we can build this country on our own, how foolish are we? So think about the Tower of Babel, but also think about the hopelessness, the chaos of the Israelites as they were enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years. Now I'm not talking about the exodus and I'm not talking about the end story. I'm talking about in the midst of their slavery. There seems to be a quiet portion of 400 years that God seems silent. They're enslaved with no hope. We're talking about generations of people enslaved. Until when? Until they decide to cry out to God. Exodus 2.23, Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help and their cry rescue from slavery came up to God see when we get our eyes off of ourselves in our circumstances and we put them on God who reigns and rules he listens he listens and he hears us and then he chooses Moses to save his people from Egypt remember Moses' response to that call in Exodus 3 he said who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt what can I do? They've been enslaved for 400 years. What can I do? It's a hopeless situation. And God just simply looked at him and said, "I will be with you." I want you to consider the hopelessness of Israel in the promised land when they were afflicted by the, the, the ta, uh, not, town, excuse me, the, the people of Midian. We read this in Judges chapter six in judges chapter 6 verse 1 it says the people of israel did what was evil in the sight of the lord we don't know what that evil was but basically it was just flat out sin they weren't looking to god they weren't dependent upon god they weren't seeking god in his will they were just living their life and completely ignored god so therefore once again becoming their own god thinking they were in control didn't need god And so God said, I'm going to instill a little confusion for you and remind you of who I am to you and what I did for you. And so for seven years, Midian overrules Israel. The hand of Midian overpowered them. Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. The moment they cried out in sincerity, did God hear them? Yes, and so he chooses a man by the name of Gideon. As he chose Moses to bring Israel out of Egypt, he now chooses Gideon to lead an army against Midian and the Amalekites and others that were causing chaos in Israel. But what was Gideon's response to God's call? Sound familiar? He says, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? I am the least in my father's house. Who am I? It's a hopeless situation. Scripture tells us in Judges 6 that the the armies and the people and the camels and the livestock and everything of Midian was too numerous to number. They were so vast. They were innumerable. So Gideon's going, what can I do? I'm in the lowest tribe and the lowest person in my father's house. But God looks at him and says, what? I will be with you. And we look to the Lord and cry out to him for help. He will use us. And then if we know the story, Gideon goes on and defeats thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Midians and Amalekites with 300. With torches and trumpets. Causing confusion in their camp. And brings them to defeat. I want you to remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or if you're familiar with VeggieTales, Rack, Shack, and Benny. Same story. But in their circumstance, this was more personal that they were being faithful to God and would not bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue, his idol. We're going to keep our eyes focused on God. And in the uncontrollable situation, they found themselves at odds with the king who sentenced them to death by throwing them into the furnace. They were out of control. They they were in a situation that was out of their control. It was beyond their control. But here's the words that they spoke to the king. In Daniel 3, they say, If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out by your hand, O king. But they go on to say, But if not, meaning if God chooses not to save us from this furnace... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your God or worship the golden image that you have set up. So man says, bow to me. Man says, worship my idols. Man says, consider my power, my prestige, and my glory. And if our eyes are set on God, we are to say no. No matter the consequence, God will save us. And if we know the story, God was with them, wasn't he? in the fire. Very quickly, I want you to think of the hopelessness the disciples felt when Jesus was arrested, tried, and crucified. Their hope was gone. What were they going to do now? Imagine those hours, those moments, until they saw him again. Let's bring it to modern day. Anybody remember the L.A. riots? That came to mind. We're speaking of a riot in Ephesus, and was thinking of the L.A. riots. I remember coming home uh, uh, I was I think I was in ninety two, right? So I was in the latter half of my freshman year of high school and I remember coming home and turning on the T V and my mom said, See what's going on. I just sat down on the couch and it was at that moment when she clicked the TV on that Reginald Denny, the truck driver, was pulled out of his truck, if you remember that scene. I won't m- mention any more, and I was just I sat there just watching. I get chills now seeing those scenes. But I'm sitting there going, What the heck is going on? I was a freshman, I had no idea What could I do? There was nothing we could do, right? Anybody have any feelings that when the terror attacks were happening in 2001, watching that unfold, where was your mind at that moment? When the U.S. and the world seemed to be in chaos, under attack, watching those buildings fall, what could we do? It was completely beyond our control. What could we do as the world was shutting down just a couple years ago? We didn't know what was happening. It was absolutely beyond our capability to do anything about it. I don't know where your mind was in those moments, those first couple weeks, going, what the heck is happening? The world is literally shutting down. What's going to happen? What's going to be the result? Maybe some of you got an intense amount of anxiety in any of those circumstances. Well, I want you to think about your own story. What happened, maybe this has gone on in your family, in your life, your career, your circumstances that has caused you to step back and go, what is going on? I can't do anything about this. I, I can't help. I can't, there's nothing I can do. So what do we do in those circumstances that are just beyond our control? Well, what did we learn from the stories we read from God's word? What's the first thing we need to do? We need to cry out to God. Cry out to the one that we believe in. God, you're in control. You are sovereign. God Almighty. I don't know why this is happening. I don't know why this person did this. I don't know what's happening or how I'm going to see the end. I see no light at the end of the tunnel. Anybody remember Jonah's prayer when he was in the midst of that fish? Read Jonah chapter 2 sometime. An amazing prayer. Crying out for hope. For salvation in our confusion, our uncertainty of the outcome, but do so in trust and faith in who God is. What do we read in Psalm chapter 30, verses 3 through 5? You brought me up from the grave, O Lord. You kept me from falling into the pit of death. Sing to the Lord, all you godly ones. Praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only for a moment, but his favor lasts as a lifetime. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. See, there is hope. There is light at the end. You can't see over this hump of chaos and a confusion and uncertainty, but it is there if we have faith and trust in our God who promises us salvation, promises us hope and joy and eternal glory. If it may not come now, it's going to come if we keep our eyes fixed on him, if we cry out to him for the help we need. Number two, we need to remain faithful. Remain faithful despite the circumstances, despite the uncertainty, despite the chaos, despite the rioting, despite the political upheaval, despite what happens, we can remain faithful. Because when things are beyond your control, there isn't anything that you can do. You can't just press the staples easy button and make it all go away. It doesn't happen. But we remain faithful in the unknown, uncontrollable circumstances of life. God has not forgotten you, He knows you, He remembers you, He sees what's happening. So look back at Him. Hebrews 13 tells us, For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. So we can say with confidence, The Lord is my helper, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? Keep your trust in God. Put yourself in the Israelite circumstance that were about 100 years into their 400 years of slavery, who may never have seen the end, who may never have been a part of the exodus. See, their mind can easily go to God forgot us. Forget it. I'm done. I don't trust in him anymore. We may not see the light here and now. Things may not turn out the way we want here and now. But that doesn't mean God has forgotten you. It doesn't mean God will not provide salvation in the end. Cry out to God. Remain faithful. And finally, number three. Trust God. In him. Remember when we talked about faith and trust? Putting your full weight and measure on who God is in the name of Jesus Christ. We have to trust in him with the outcome, whether it goes our way or it doesn't. Now, we read some stories of amazing salvation from Egypt, from the Midianites, from the fiery furnace... I want you to think about Daniel in the lion's den. Amazing circumstance where God saved individuals and his people from chaos. But I want you to think about Stephen for a moment. Stephen was martyred. Stephen was stoned to death. And in the midst of getting stoned to death, he was fixed on God. Crying out to God. God forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. But was he saved in this life? No. We could look at that situation and go, God, why didn't you save him? He could have been an amazing individual for your kingdom. See, God's in control. God has a plan. We trust in him for the outcome. Not so that we could be just a tad bit more comfortable or we think, okay, it seems as if I can kind of wrap my hands around my circumstances like I've got some sort of control so I feel a little bit better. (laughs) We have to cry out to him in every way. He has not forgotten you. Trust in him. Remain faithful. Let me read you some portions from Psalm 31 as we close out. If you want to use this as a time of prayer, then then let's go to the Lord in prayer and listen to these words that come from Psalm 31, and we'll close with this. The first five verses say, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net that they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Later in the chapter it says, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Love the Lord, all you saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Remember, God is in control. He's a God of peace. He has a plan. Cry out to him in your confusion and uncertainty, but remain faithful as he is faithful. Trust him with the outcome.